Welcome to Day of Destiny with Dr. Michelle Corral, author, prophetic teacher, and pastor of Breath of the Spirit Prophetic Word Center. Dr. Corral can be seen weekly, nationwide, and around the world on her weekly telecasts that air on God TV, Impact, and Word Network. Now, let's join Dr. Corral by experiencing Day of Destiny, designed with your highest destiny in mind. Now, here is Dr. Corral. Let us look at the text. It says, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. For the marriage of the lamb is come and the bride has made herself ready. What does it mean when the Bible says the bride has made herself ready? This word actually means ready, actually means prepared. Say it with me, prepared. So actually this text is telling us that the bride is being prepared. Now, when we speak about the bride, first of all, we do not want the brethren to feel uncomfortable. I want you to understand that there are certain um, phrases in the scripture that could, it seem like um, it, it would seem very uncomfortable for the brethren because when it says that the church is the bride of Christ, that's very difficult because a man has a difficult, um, it's very difficult for a man to relate to that. But I want you to see that there are some terms in the scriptures that have to be used in a feminine sense and some that have to be used in a masculine sense in order for the text to communicate the reality. For example, the Bible says, behold, what manner of love the father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Notice that includes the sisters as well. It includes the whole body of Christ. All right. Because when we think of inheritance, biblically speaking, that is in the masculine sense. It is in the sense of sonship and inheritance. And the same thing with the bride of Christ. It doesn't mean it excludes the brethren. It means all of us together. Brothers and sisters are part of the bride of Christ, meaning that there is no other way to communicate this holy and intimate relationship between Christ and his church. So the text is using bride. And so I want us to understand exclusively what the bride is. All right, we are going to see this. Notice it says, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor unto him for the marriage supper of the lamb has come and his bride wife has made herself prepared or ready. Let us look at Revelation chapter 21, looking at verse two, and we are going to see another context on the bride being prepared. Now, beloved saints, I want you to understand, notice in Revelation 19, verse 7, the responsibility of being prepared was not God preparing the bride. Notice it says the bride has made herself ready. That means it's our responsibility to be prepared. Say this with me. It's my responsibility to stay prepared. It's my responsibility to be ready for my Lord. All right. It's our responsibility to walk in that completion that Christ has called us to. Looking at Revelation 21, verse 2. 
we see, I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven. What? Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So we see two texts. We see Revelation 19, 7 that the bride has made herself ready or been prepared. And we also see now in Revelation 21, I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven as a bride prepared. Say it with me, prepared. Say it with me, preparing the bride. All right. Now you may say, what in the world does that have to do with Rosh Hashanah, Dr. Carell? First of all, I want you to understand that it has much to do with Rosh Hashanah. First of all, we must understand that the month of Elul has been um, throughout the ages known as the month of the Kala. Kala in Hebrew is bride. Okay. So the month of the bride, not meaning it's bride's month. But meaning, in the sense, when the children of Israel came back from the Babylonian exile to inhabit the land of Israel, the Babylonian exile gave birth to the uh, people who had been exiled, gave birth to a movement of dedication and study to God's word. That the Jews who returned back to the land of Israel after the exile were completely committed to serving God through his word because there was no other connection to God outside his word. Why? Because they were in a land where they had no more temple. The temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. They were living in exile. And so they connected to God through his commandments. They connected to God through his word. So that when they came back, they dedicated the month of Elul to the bride. Why? Because the month of Elul became a month of dedication of studying God's word. It became a month of intimacy before Rosh Hashanah. It became a month of becoming so close to God. And so therefore, you can actually see in the historical context that there were holy convocations during the month of Elul that these convocations drew thousands of um, of persons to study Torah. And they were called, those convocations were called uh, the Kala. They took place in the month of Adar, which is the 12th month, and they took place in the month of Elul. So the Kala, say it with me, Kala. Okay, Kala is the word bride in Hebrew, but it is related to another word that is spelled exactly the same. Do you really want to know what the bride is? How many of you really want to know what the bride is? You will find what the bride is in the Hebrew word that is related to it. There is another Hebrew word that is spelled exactly the same. It is spelled exactly as kala, only it is kala. The only difference is the accent on the word or the vowelization. And the word kala means finished. Say it with me, finished. So that we understand that the secret of the bride is finished. Say it with me. The secret of the bride is finished. That means I want you to understand what kind of finish. What does it mean when the Bible teaches us that the bride is prepared? The bride is adorned. The bride is finished in that concept. 
It is actually related to the concept of the way God finished the heavens and the earth. Do you really want to know what the church is in the eyes of God? Do you really want to know the destiny of the church? Then the first place we're going to see that what the church is like, what the destiny of the church is, is found in Genesis chapter 2. Look, if you will, at Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And we are going to see it because you are going to see that the bride is actually related to the concept of the Sabbath. And it doesn't mean just resting from work. I'm going to show you that the Sabbath has to do with God bringing everything to the fullness of perfection. God bringing everything to the highest point of its purpose. Say this with me. I've been destined to fulfill my purpose. I've been destined to be the finished work. Say this with me. Not an incompleted work, but a finished work. The finished work of Jesus Christ. Hello, somebody. Did you hear me? All right. Let us look and see this concept so that we can understand. And I'm going to show it to you really quick. The Bible says, on the seventh day, God ended his work. This word ended is the same as finished in this sense. And it is the word kala, kala. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had made continuing. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it, he rested from all the work that he had created and made. Going back up to verse one, verse one says, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and the host of them said with me, finished, ended. What is going on here on the first Shabbat? What is actually happening is that God created the heavens and the earth. And on the seventh day, when he rested, everything was already at the pinnacle of perfection so that the glory of God actually covered the earth. So that means there was nothing that needed to be finished. Everything was finished. And we have the same language used in Exodus chapter 40. In verse 33, look, if you will, at Exodus 40, verse 33, when the tabernacle was finished. Notice the Bible says, this is why the Bible says, as you just read, I, John, saw the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. And in a moment, we'll look at verse 10, because the Bible says, having the glory of God. Why? Because the glory of God is only placed when something is finished. Something is brought to perfection. Notice, he carried me away in the spirit and showed me a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Continue. Having the glory of God and her light was like unto a precious stone. Are you hearing this, saints? That's the church. Say it with me. That's the church. All right, now we're going to Genesis, uh, excuse me, Exodus, so we can understand this concept of finished. Say it with me, finished, completed, 
brought to its highest pinnacle of purpose. Say this with me. Jesus is not returning to an unfinished bride. He's not returning to incompleted works. He is not returning to a bride that has not accomplished what he died on the cross to make the bride. I hope you understand what I'm talking about. Turn to somebody and say, we're in the Torah zone right now. All right. Say, we're going deeper. All right. Here we see verse 33. Looking at verse 33. And the Bible says, last line, this is the last work that Moses did with the tabernacle. And what does it say? So Moses finished the work. The word kalah is used here. He finished it. Just like the Bible says, God finished the heavens and the earth. He finished it. And notice the next verse in verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent. Notice the church had the glory of God in Revelation chapter 21, as you just read in verses 10 and 11. Are you with me, saints? The glory covering that which is finished. Are you with me? Then the cloud covered the tent of the congregation and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. All right, what does this actually have to do with Rosh Hashanah? First of all, I want you to understand the book of Revelation. We're going to go to the book of Revelation for just a moment. And I want you to understand that in the book of Revelation, let's just go to Revelation chapter 1. I want you to understand in the book of Revelation, saints, we have the use of the word of the letter or the number seven, 95 times. Say this with me. That's not an accident. Say seven, 95 times. Say that was done very deliberately by John. Why? Because seven is the number of the biblical feasts. All biblical feasts are in segments of seven, aren't they? You have the first biblical feast in Leviticus 23. You don't need to look at it. Verse three, you will have a Sabbath, a holy convocation. That in itself is the feast that all the biblical feasts are actually replicated after. So you have the first Sabbath, which is one seventh. Then you have Passover, seven days. Then you have Feast of Weeks, seven weeks. Then you have Rosh Hashanah, the seventh month. Then you have Yom Kippur, the 10th day of the seventh month. Then you have Feast of Tabernacles in the seventh month, a feast of seven days. What does all that mean? It all means something about the Sabbath, that there is a rest what kind of arrest? Arrest from bondage. Arrest from um, dominion of the enemy in your life. Arrest from control. Arrest from the bondages that the enemy would put on your life. Let me just share with you what the Shabbat really is. The first word, the first place in the Bible that we see Shabbat is Genesis chapter 2. Let's go there again. 
I'm going to show you the spiritual significance of words in Hebrew. We see in Genesis chapter 2, and we see looking at verse 2, the Bible says, and on the seventh day God ended his work, which he had made, and he rested. Say he rested. That is the word Shabbat. But it is not the only Hebrew word for rest. There are other Hebrew words for rest, like Nuach. Noah was named after a type of rest, comfort he's going to give to his people, but a type of rest that came in the days of Noah after the flood. And there are other Hebrew words for rest. How do we really know the secret of what Shabbat really means? Okay, because Shabbat in that word, hmm, we have a root. And that root is just like shuv. If you were with us over the weekend, what did we learn about shuv? In the word shuv, shuv means to return, doesn't it? It means to go back, but it also means to repent. But it not only means to go back, to the point of origin in Hebrew to repent does not just mean to repent, but it also means to go back to the original origin. Okay, so when we say Shabbat, this word for rest, the first place we see it is here, but I'm going to show you the second place we see it. Let's go for a moment. We see it here, and then we see it. Let's go over to the book of Exodus, and let's go to Exodus chapter 5, looking at verse 5. We're going to read verses 1 through 5, but the key is verse 5. This is the second place in the Bible where Shabbat is used, so it'll help you understand what the Bible is teaching us about Shabbat. The Bible says, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and they told Pharaoh, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? I will not obey his voice and I will not let Israel go. Looking at the next verse. And they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Let us go. Notice you keep seeing this, this phrase, to go or to let go. Okay, because there's a bondage that Pharaoh had over the people. There was a control. There was a grip that bought a bondage that Pharaoh had over the people. Are you with me? If you are, say amen. All right, continue. And the Bible says, Three, let them go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice unto the Lord, lest he fall upon us with pestilence and with the sword. Looking at verse four, and the king of Egypt said unto them, wherefore do you, Moses and Aaron, let the people go from their works. Notice again, you have the let the people from their works. Get to your burdens. Look at verse four. Get to your burdens. Next verse. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people are many, and you make them Shabbat from their burdens. Hello, I said that you make them Shabbat from their burdens. So we are learning that Shabbat means to cease. It means to stop, but it also means to break. It also means to break down something. I hope you're with me, and I hope you understand that some things are about 
Rosh Hashanah. Are you with me? If you are, say amen. Say this with me. Things are about to break. Okay. And notice it says, you, Moses, make them Shabbat. You make the people of the land are many, and you make them Shabbat from their burdens. How many people here want a Shabbat from your burdens? Do you know what it means to Shabbat from your burdens? It means not to carry them anymore. It means to let the Lord take the burden. It means the burden to be broken. It means that you will be free. It means that God is about to bring some liberation. Hallelujah. And divine emancipation from the burdens that you have been bearing. Say this with me. God's about to break the burdens that I've been bearing. Hallelujah. You want to really see what this thing is about? Go with me to Isaiah chapter 14, looking at verse 3. Hallelujah. God wants to give some people rest from their sorrow. God wants to give some people rest from the cycle. God wants to give some people rest from the same thing that you have been dealing with year in and year out. It is time for that thing to break. It is time for it to cease. It is time for it to come under the blood of Jesus. Are you hearing me? Verse 3, and it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will give you rest from your sorrow and from your fear and from your hard bondage wherein you were made to serve. Say this with me. During Rosh Hashanah, things are being altered. Things are being changed. God is stopping the cycle. God is breaking the burdens. God has given me the rest because during the season of the biblical feast, it is a time of supernatural rest after the test. Somebody ought to say rest after the test. So, and God's telling me I have to do this. I have to go in the direction the Holy Ghost is leading. Sometimes the way we went on the phone call is not the way we're going in the service. So I have to be led by the Holy Ghost. Genesis chapter 8. Look at this. Genesis chapter 8 is going to tell us what happened on one of the most powerful Rosh Hashanahs in the Bible. Okay? A day of remembrance. A zikaron. Look and see what's going on. And God remembered Noah. That was Rosh Hashanah. And every living thing and the cattle. Hallelujah, isn't it something he remembers the animals? Did you know that even God even made laws concerning animals? Did you know that it is possible that if your ox falls into a ditch on Shabbat, you break the Shabbat to pull the ox up? Did you know that? That's law. That's the Torah law. So when Jesus said, if you can pull up an ox, out of the ditch. He's not a renegade. He's teaching it right. Hello. I said, Jesus is teaching it right. He's not a renegade. He is a radical 
teacher of the truth. He is the rabbi of rabbis in Israel. Said if your ox falls into a ditch, you pull it out. That's the Torah law. You don't let your ox stay in. That is from Deuteronomy. That's a law of God. And if your donkey needs watering and it's Shabbat and you can't break the Shabbat because you have to pull the donkey, you pull the donkey and give the donkey water first. That's the Torah law, actually. Do you all understand? So Jesus said, if you can bring a donkey to the water on the Shabbat and pull an ox out of a ditch, how much more should this daughter of Abraham be loosed from this bond on the Shabbat? Why? Because the Shabbat was meant to break bondage. Are you with me? If you are, say amen. Say this with me. I'm getting ready to get really freed up on Rosh Hashanah. Come on. I'm getting ready for some heavy bondages to be broken off my family, to be broken off my body, to be broken off my life, to be broken off my destiny. Somebody should shout the victory. Woo. Notice, God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the cattle because of God's mercy and compassion. He loves all his creation. That means if in Israel, I live in Israel, and let's just say I'm a really, I, I, let's just say we as Gentiles have a hard time re relating to this, but it's all right. We have to learn it because I want to show you what God is like. Okay. Say, say you are in Israel and you just got a brand new puppy. And now it's Shabbat. You can't, not supposed to do stuff. Not supposed to move. Supposed to pray, be with the Lord, be in prayer, let the anointing fill up, consecrate, and celebrate God's goodness. But if that donkey, that little doggy broke its foot, guess what? You break the Shabbat to bring the donkey or the doggy to the doctor. That's the law. That's called pakuach hanefesh. Say, say it with me. Pakuach hanefesh. These are the laws of Shabbat. It's better to save life. This is not just Jesus is saying, even though he did. Because the Shabbat was not made for man, in other words, the Shabbat was made for man, not man made to serve the Shabbat. It was given as a gift. It was given as rest. It was given as a time to break bondages, to stop cycles. Are you with me? So that means if I'm a doctor and someone's having a baby, should I just say, I'm sorry, it's Shabbat, I can't deliver the child? No. And do you say, I'm sorry, it's Shabbat, I, 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 we're going to have to let that little puppy cry all night long and whimper with a broken foot because I can't break the Shabbat to take the, doc, the, the little doggy to the vet? No. You break the Shabbat to save life. 
Because the Shabbat is about giving life. One of the rabbis said, you don't die by my commandments, you live by them. Hello, somebody, you don't die by them, you live by them. Somebody ought to praise God. Say this with me, my master, my Lord took it to another level. That means he is saying anybody with certain kind of bondages, like if you have been at the pool of Bethesda for 38 years and you can't walk on the Shabbat, I'm going to prove what Shabbat is all about. I'm going to walk past you and say, would you be healed? Hello, somebody. And you know what Jesus tells them to do? Violate the Sabbath by take up your bed and walk. Because you are not supposed to. You are not supposed to carry a burden on the Sabbath. But in reality, it's not violating the Sabbath. It's fulfilling the Sabbath. Because the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And that is rabbinic law. Somebody ought to say amen. Those men that were challenging Jesus didn't know the Torah. Hello? I said they didn't know the rabbinic law. They were in argument about it. But Jesus said the truth. And even today, those are the laws in Israel. But Jesus took it to a whole nother level. The man with the withered hand in the synagogue, they waited to see so they could accuse Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. Jesus knew their thoughts. And he said, stretch out your hand. Why? Because you need the hand to live. You need the hand for works. You need your hand for destiny. And how can you live if you don't have your hand? Because the Shabbat was given for life. Do you understand it? Messianically, we are celebrating these biblical feasts because we're receiving deliverance. We are receiving, we are experiencing these feasts because we are hallowing God's name. And we are receiving through the blood of Yeshua all of the promises that are in God's word for us. Are you with me? If you are, say amen. So I want us to understand this. God remembered Noah and all the cattle and everything that was with him in the ark. And he caused a wind to pass over the earth. We saw this in Genesis 1, but we're not going to go back to it. And I want you to look at verse 4. Notice what verse 4 tells us. The Bible is telling us what happened. First, God remembered Noah. And obviously, in the seventh month, he caused the ark to rest. And while the ark is resting on Mount Ararat, the waters are receding. Do you all see that? Notice it says, the ark rested in what month? Say, say it again. The ark rested in? Say this is not an accident. God made it Shabbat on top of the mountains of Ararat because Ararat means in Hebrew, reverse the curse. I want you to know that God is about to reverse the curse. God is about to bring down bondages. God is about to set his people free during the biblical feast. All right. 
We got that established. Now we need to look at preparing the bride. All right. If, beloved saints, you could understand the word preparing or prepare in the context of prepare the bride in the first century, would you want to know it so that you could understand the deeper meanings of God's word? How many of you would like to know what it means in the first century? Okay. In the first century, customs were different than they are now. So we can read something and we can look at a text and it can mean one thing to us in 2021, but it can have a bit of a different meaning in its historical context. Do you all understand? All right. Many years ago, there was a brilliant scholar who dedicated his entire life to translating Hebrew words. His entire life, he wrote volumes of finding out the multiple places certain words are used. He not only did this in the Torah itself, means the Bible, but he also did this in the rabbinic literature. He took words and he investigated the use of those words when they were used, how they were applied. And he wrote what was called a dictionary. His name was Jastro. And Rabbi Jastro was so brilliant that he actually took the concept of preparing the bride what it means. How can you find out what it means? You're going to have to look and see historically where is preparing the bride used in a historical sense only for historical records so that we might be able to apply the actual meaning from the scriptures. Do you all understand? How many of you really want to know the depths of the scriptures? You want to know the deep things of the scriptures. Okay. One of the places that we see preparing the bride is found in Shabbat, which is one of the orders of the Mishnah. It's a historical document. It's important to Christians. Why? Because we want resources that are accurate. All right. Uh, let me give you an example. Many years ago, I was looking for commentaries and I went to bookstores. I spent hundreds of dollars on commentaries. And I would pick up, go to Christian bookstore, look through the commentaries, bring them home, try to study. And it was so disappointing. Why? Because it would basically give the Sunday school version of what the scripture meant. And I would want to know, well, is there any historical background here? All I really wanted to know was to study history on a verse or the culture on a verse so that I could apply it. But it didn't matter how much money I spent on whatever commentary I spent. They would just basically repeat the verse and just tell you, like if it said, and Jesus went down to the plain. 
Then you would just read in the commentary, there was a plane in such and such a place and Jesus went down. Wait a minute, that's not telling me anything. I already know that. The scripture already said it. And this went on for several years to the point that I asked the Lord, please, I'm begging you, can you help me find some source of getting more than what we're getting? And so that was the beginning of my endeavor with Torah. So that when I bring to you Torah values and Torah teaching, it is not to Judaize anyone. We are Gentiles, but we interpret the scripture messianically. That means that we perceive the scriptures through the Messiah. Do you all understand? And we understand the messianic implications of the Torah and the New Testament together. And so as we interpret the scriptures messianically, we need to also have a conceptual framework of what was life like in the days of Jesus the rabbi? What was the culture like? Who was Jesus the rabbi? What kind of rabbi was he? Number one, it's the greatest case of mistaken identity in human history is that Jesus is a Gentile or that Jesus is rebellious against the Torah because that makes him an illegitimate Messiah. Jesus is not rebellious against the Torah. He's the greatest Torah teacher that ever walked on this earth. And everything he taught was Torah. All he taught were the commandments of God. All the parables teach his, his disciples how to fulfill the commandments properly. And, and so when we go to sources that are historical documents from the first century that were written at the time of Christ, we're going to get an accurate assessment of what certain sayings mean and what certain scriptures mean. Are you with me? Okay. So this Jastro, who translated thousands of words, and he put thousands of applications of what they mean and how they were used in what scriptures they were used. Also found preparing the bride in what was called the Mishnah. The Mishnah is good for Christians for historical purposes. Do you all understand? And to see what is the, what is the tradition in the time of Christ? How did they celebrate? What did they do in the first century? And so in the Mishnah, there is a tractate called Shabbat. And in that tractate, Shabbat 23, there is an instance of when a bride is preparing herself. And Jastro looked up the various uses of preparing the bride, how they were used in the first century. What it means to prepare the bride. Oh, now we're going to get down to some revelation. Are you with me? Yes. Say, I want to really know what it means to prepare the bride. Hallelujah. One of the first meanings that Jastro found was that preparing the bride means to escape 
Hello, I said it was used in various texts to escape. So that means it's the destiny of the bride to escape. Hello, somebody, are you with me? Go with me to Luke's gospel and look at Luke chapter 21. Say this with me. The bride is being prepared to escape. Hallelujah, to escape the things to come. Notice verse 36. The Bible says in Luke chapter 21, verse 36, watch always, therefore, pray always that you may be what? Accounted worthy to escape all the things that shall come to pass and stand before the son of man. So that means preparing the bride means to walk worthy, that you might be found worthy to escape the things that are coming on the earth. Somebody ought to praise God. How do we apply that? That we might escape. Well, first of all, one of the ways we know we escape is that if we look at the structure and we look at composition rather than chronicle, we interpret scripture two ways. We can interpret scripture by the chronological version of scripture, such as the gospels. The three synoptic gospels are interpreted chronologically. But we also need to look at composition. And oftentimes, composition is more important than chronicle. We see composition being the primary way we interpret John. We don't interpret John chronologically. We interpret John in the context of composition, the way it's written, to get the author's intent. And so, therefore, when we look at the book of Revelation, we also have to see composition. And what is in the beginning of the book of Revelation? Seven letters to seven churches. These seven letters to seven churches are before the judgment. Do you understand what happens after the seven letters to the seven churches? And Revelation chapter 1, he sees the vision of Jesus. Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3 are the seven letters to the seven churches. Revelation chapter 4, we get the vision of heaven. Revelation 5, the seals are opened by the Lamb who is worthy. Revelation chapter 5 and 6, the judgments begin. And the rest of Revelation is the judgments. Why is the church first going through correction in chapters 1 and 2, 2 and 3? Because God is going to judge the world. And in order for the church to escape the judgment of the world, there are certain corrections that the church has to make to be found worthy to escape the judgment that's coming. I don't know if you heard me or not. Hello, somebody. Are you there? 
Are you hearing this? Preparing the bride to escape. If you notice in the book of Revelation, there is a pattern. There is a pattern. Notice the pattern. Let me read it for you so that you can see. Notice the church is not going to be judged with the world. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 31 and 32 very quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 31 and 32. The Bible says, if you judge yourselves, the Bible says, uh, go back up to verse 30. Okay, verse 31. For if we would judge ourselves, we will not be judged. Say this with me. If I judge myself, I'm not going to be judged. Say it again. If I judge myself, look at it. Look at it. If we judge ourselves, we'll not be judged. Maybe you didn't hear me. Read the word. This is not candy coated. Nobody tampered with the text. This is written from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 31. Nobody here rewrote the King James Version. This is the Bible right here. If we judge ourselves or any version of the Bible, I don't think anybody would dare rewrite the Bible unless it was a cult trying to prove their point illegitimately lying in the scripture. But we're all, all the script, all the beautiful versions, the NIV, the Amplified, whatever version you use, it's all going to say the same thing. Nobody's going to horse around with the Bible, wouldn't dare try to manipulate it or try to change its meaning to formulate some man's agenda? I don't think so. And so we see here, if we would judge ourselves, we will not be judged. But watch this, verse 32. But when we are judged, we are chastened. The better word would be corrected. When we are judged, we are corrected of the Lord, chastened of the Lord that we what? would not be condemned with the world because the world judgment is not with the church. Maybe you didn't hear me. I said the world's judgment is not with the church. The church is judged separately. So how's the church going to be judged? Oh, hmm. you're not going to be judged if you're born again. Or you won't even be in the judgment with the church. If you're not born of God, you're going to be judged with the world. So you're not even going to be judged with the church. But if you are truly born of God, you are going to be judged with the church. Do you all understand? You have a different judgment. You're not going to be judged as did you receive Christ as your savior? You're not going to be judged of did, what did you do with the Savior? Did you accept him or reject him? You, accept, you accepted him. You have a different judgment. What the church is going to be judged with is their works. Your works before God. Are they completed? Have they been brought to fulfillment? I can't get any help in here tonight. Revelation. Chapter 2, 2 tells us, I have not found your works perfect before God. 
Revelation 2.9, I have somewhat against you. Revelation chapter 2, verse 13, did the church at Ephesus in 2.2? In um, he says the same things. I know your works. And Revelation 2.9 to the church at Smyrna, I know your works. And Revelation 2.13 to the church at Pergamos, I know your works. And Revelation 2.19 to the church at Thyatira, I know your works. And Revelation 3.1 to the church at Sardis, I know your works. In Revelation 3.8 to the church at Philadelphia, I know your works. And Revelation 3.15 to the church at Laodicea, I know your works. That means the church is going to be judged by our works. Hello, somebody. To find your works before God to be found perfect. And this must be done before judgment hits the world. So what's going on now? I can't possibly tonight speak of all the meanings of paka. Paka, which means, pakak, which means prepared. Jastro found escape. Jastro also saw removing debris. Hmm, removing debris. Some of us right now are going through the most difficult testings of our life. There are some of you here that are going through a deep loneliness. Others of you are going through a sense of abandonment in yourself. Some of you are fighting principalities and powers of wickedness that you didn't even know existed, that you're fighting. Some of you are being tested with health. Some of you are being tested in family. Shocking things you didn't expect. Some of you are being tested with the most grievous thing. You never expected it to happen that way. No one gave you heads up. This is because the Lord is removing debris. Pecock, he's preparing the bride. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, Beloved, do not think it strange the fiery trial that should test you as though some strange thing has happened to you. The Bible says, for when you are, notice, that the trial of your faith, go back up to verse 6, going through manifold temptations, you're in heaviness. How many here are in heaviness going through manifold temptation or test? Raise your hand. Some of you are going through loss of loved ones. Others of you are going through loss of whatever it may be. Notice verse 7. 
Verse 7 says that the trial of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes might be, though it is tried with fire, might be found to the praise and the glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, the removal of the debris. Gold, when it is refined, goes through a refining process so that the debris is removed. That's what's happening now because he's proving the church because judgment is going to hit. Hello, somebody. I don't know if you heard me or not. And so that means the bride is getting ready to escape. The bride, the removal of debris is coming to the bride. Another word for preparing the bride is prudence. That's the word sakel. The, br the bride is going to be filled with behavioral wisdom and character traits. Another word for pekak is bright. The bride is going to be bright and shining like the Bible tells us in the book of Revelation, having the glory of God. Another word for the bride is watch. This word pakak means to watch, to guard, to keep. That means the bride is being called to be on watch with the things that have been given to you lest you should let them slip. Are you with me, saints? Preparing the bride. Stand to your feet and say this with me, Holy Spirit. During this month of Elul, I want to be prepared to come into all that the Lord has for me. Oh, I want to be found in faith. Oh, Tikatara, just remain standing. Just remain standing. Oh, Tikatara, just keep praying. Hallelujah. Just keep praying. Okay, take I want to read to you from Revelation as we're standing. Revelation chapter 3. Let me just read it. Hallelujah. Revelation chapter 3. I'm going to read it while we're standing. Just stay in the presence of the Lord. Hallelujah. Revelation to the church at Sardis. He starts it out. These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works that you have a name and you live, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things that remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. This word perfect is not the word teleos. Telios is usually the word that is used for perfect, which means mature, means full stature, 
That's teleos. But this word has to do with plerio, has to do with finished. I have not found your works completed. That means assignments were given and they weren't finished. That also means that the assignment never reached its pinnacle of purpose and power. We did not allow the Spirit of God to stretch our work to a place of perfection in the eyes of God. We dropped it. But now, we as the bride are finished. That's our destiny, to finish. Our destiny is to be the finished work. Our destiny is to be complete. Our destiny is to complete our assignment. Our destiny is to finish what God has given us. Put your hands up and raise your hands to receive that anointing, to finish what God has given you in the year ahead. You will finish what you were created to do. You will finish your destiny. You will finish what God put on your heart since you were a child. You will finish every work that God has ordained for you. You will finish it. You will complete it. Say it with me, Lord Jesus. I want to complete my assignment and bring it to perfection for the glory of God in Jesus' name. Now give God the praise and give God the glory. Come on, give God the praise and give God the glory. Come on, give God the praise. Come on, give God the praise and give God the glory. Thank you for joining us today on Day of Destiny. We invite you to our website at mydayofdestiny.com where you can easily access other podcasts and obtain your copy of Dr. Corral's latest book, Secrets of the Anointing. Also, we want to take this moment to invite you to engage in extending your hand of kindness by planting your seed or offering for multitudes that include orphans, providing water wells, providing medical supplies, clinics, feeding programs, and many other services to the suffering church and through efforts of evangelism worldwide. Just go to our website and click the donate button or text to give. Text HESED, C-H-E-S-E-D, to 7797. That's HESED, C-H-E-S-E-D, to 7797. You are also invited to visit Dr. Michelle Corral Facebook or Instagram. We look forward to having you encounter the anointing with us on our next Day of Destiny podcast. 